open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 12 through 19. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garment, he, he sat down and he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Now, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted his heel against me. And now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Uh, As we begin chapter 13, we often point out the Gospel of John in five different sections. The largest one is chapter 5 through 12, which is the opposition So now we're in transition. We go from the Lord, if you look at verse one, you'll see the transition from speaking to the multitudes, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, From chapters 13 through 17, these are now personal words, not to the crowds, but to his own. And we read in verse one, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse one is a thought, it's a transition, and with it, in this discourse that we're entering into, it's one of the greatest that our Lord ever gave. It is meaningful uh, to us today because he took his own into the upper room and he reveals new things to them. Now it's one-on-one. Now it's just the guys, his disciples, his own. And um, on Wednesday night, what we did is we went through all of chapter 13, verse by verse. Um, Because we did that on Wednesday night, I'm taking a section And um, this morning, we'll look at three different topics from um, John chapter 13. And they are, for taking notes, number one, how to be happy. Number two, a prophecy with a double application. And number three, the consequences of seeking self-promotion. We'll be looking at all of three of these. And I could have, um, I wrestled with this. I wanted to call it, how to be happy. But then I thought, that sounds kind of corny. How to be happy, how to be happy. Don't worry, I started thinking, don't worry, be happy. And I just, all these crazy things started going. I said, don't even go there, call it something else. So even though we could call it any one of these three different things, I've decided to go with the importance of prophecy. And I have to admit, that uh, in this study, and the great thing about consistently going through the scriptures is that the Lord is always bringing new treasures, new insights, things you've never seen before. And um, um, I really got into enjoying um, studying this week as I saw things that I never saw before. And so um, I've already pointed out the change from chapter 12 to 13, A different section, this is a fourth of five. Number two is a thought within itself because we read um, in verse two, and supper ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Now this is a different thought altogether and it has to do with our prophecy that we're gonna be looking at. Here it says the devil put it in his heart. Um, As we read a little bit farther, In verse 27, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And we talked about this on um, 
uh, Wednesday evening about the difference between demon possession and demon oppression. Judas and the Antichrist are the only two in scripture that I'm aware of where the devil actually, many times demons, one third of the Lord's ministry was casting out demons. But here we have the devil himself entering into, according to verse um, 27, entering into um, Judas. In verse two, he's simply putting something in his heart. So uh, in these first five verses, let's read one through five, pick it up verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel in which he was girded. So one by one, the Lord takes off his, uh, his garment, puts on his servant's clothes, gets on his knees, and goes around and starts washing the disciples' feet. Well, if you were here Wednesday, you know, Peter being Peter, said, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? I don't think so. He said, okay, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have anything to do with me. So Peter, being Peter, says, then Lord, give me a shower. Head to toe, give it all. He says, no, Peter, just your feet. And we got sidetracked talking about the Christian walk and, and the washing of the word, how the Lord washes us today. How can a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed to his word? If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you from your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We use Christianese like uh, the Christian walk. It's a walk that we have. So for whatever reason, what was customary in those days, if you traveled, the very first thing that you would do for your guest is you would set him down and wash his feet as he would come in. That was a servant's job. So the Lord is making the point here in our text. He says, you say that I'm your Lord and master. And you're right, I am. He said, therefore, as, these, as we read these verses here, um, the reason Jesus washes the disciples' feet is actually explained to us in verse 15. So let's make our way down to verse 15. For I have given you an example. So he's putting on um, an analogy, literally doing it, and then he asks them if they understand, and he says, what I'm doing right now is an example. And the Lord begins to explain the whole difference of why he came. He's Lord, he's master, yet he came to serve, and he came to wash feet. So he then goes on to say, uh, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. A lot of people aren't happy today because they're, they're not in their servant uh, mindset in their mentality. It's more about them. And I'm gonna be drawing contrasts this morning. The biggest one is going to be self-seeking, self-promoting, um, alternative motives, and Judas Iscariot is a very much a type of that. And um, remember when he was complaining about, oh, this money should have been given to the poor. He didn't care about the poor. You know, he had the money box, and it tells us he was a thief. And whenever there was money in it, he took it out. So he's into it for himself versus what the Lord has given an example to, to the disciples. They say, no, if you want to be my disciple, you want to be happy? Then you esteem the other person higher than yourself, and you seek to serve that person rather than the self-promoting way of, of Judas Iscariot. So many people today are not happy. They're just not happy people. They're not happy people because they haven't found a way to, um, as we talked about on Wednesday night, it's the love of Christ that constrains me to do what we do. We're simply in love with Jesus. Therefore, we want to please the Lord. How do we do that? By applying this example. You want to be happy? You're not happy now? You want to be happy? Then 
Find a way to serve. Find a way to um, build others up. We're told to exhort one another daily in love. Good place for an amen. Uh, to, to love one another. If you just look over across to verse uh, 34, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. That's an example. How did he love? He laid down his life. He says, greater love has no man than this, and a man has laid down his life for a friend. That's the Jesus style. Versus, on the contrary, on the other hand, we uh, go from, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. In other words, not just hearing about them, but actually being a doer of, a, of the word and not a hearer. And then he switches gears. He says, you guys are all clean. Eh, almost. And in verse 18, and the reason for the title of our message, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know who I have chosen, but that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now we're talking prophecy. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And this is a reference to Psalm 41.9. And now I tell you before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, you will believe that I am. He's referring to Judas Iscariot who's gonna betray him. And he calls him a friend um, who has risen his feet and came against him in betrayal. Um, Let's turn to this prophecy in Psalm 41. I am gonna ask you to flip with me in all these scriptures this morning. I want you to see them because I really got my mind going when I read this verse. The scripture that Jesus is quoting is um, a Psalm of David. And in verse nine, we read, even our own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate at my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Well, that's not exactly what Jesus quoted. He quoted part B, But in verse nine it says, even my own familiar friend in whom I have trusted uh, is actually a double prophecy. And I want to stop and have you think about this. There are places where you have a double prophecy. It has a double meaning to it. Clearly, in John 13, Jesus is quoting it about Judas Iscariot because he says, so the scriptures must be fulfilled. It's clearly, no doubt about it, about Judas. But the first part, 9a, even our own familiar friend in whom I've trusted. And when I read that, I said, well, this is David's perspective. Yes, he's speaking under the authority of the Holy Spirit, but David's got something completely different in mind than what the Lord does. If you just turn a couple pages to um, um, Psalm 55, it goes even farther concerning another individual that David has in mind. Psalm 55, look at verse 12. He speaks more in depth about the person he has in mind. In verse 12 of 55, it says, For it is not an enemy who reproached me, then I could have borne it. Nor is it one who hates me who has magnified himself against me. I could have handled that. But it was you a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and we walked to the house of God in the throne. Who in the world is David talking about? Evidently somebody who is very close to. He um, uh, was acquaintance, equal uh, as far as David was concerned and um, they worshiped the Lord together They were friends, and it's this, in Psalm uh, 41, David's thinking one thing. As he writes, even my own familiar friend whom I've trusted, he betrayed me. Now everybody here, without exception, has been betrayed by somebody. Maybe it wasn't a friend, but um, um, everybody's gone through some sort of betrayal somewhere in her life. 
And David here is, is pouring it out about a man that he's thinking about in his past. On the other hand, double prophecy, it's clearly a prophecy that Jesus talks about in John 13 that relates to Judas Iscariot. Because what we, what we did on Wednesday night, we actually went, and it talks about the one I ate bread with. Well, if you read, uh, if you weren't here on Wednesday, I challenge you to read all the chapter, because they're eating, and the Lord says, there's somebody at this table that's gonna betray me tonight. And John, um, Peter's <laughs> motioning to John, saying, ask him who it is. Who's, who is it? Because John is sitting right next to Jesus. And so the Lord, John leans over to the Lord and says, who is it, Lord? He says, well, it's the one that I give the bread to after I've dipped it in the sup. And as soon as he did that, he took a piece of bread, he dipped it in the sup, and he gave it to Judas. And John knows. John knows. And so he said, I'm gonna tell you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you might believe. That is a purpose for prophecy. So that when you see it fulfilled, you'll believe that I am he. So John goes, whoa. I can just imagine what he's thinking. And um, so we know that this prophecy is twofold. So what I'd like to do this morning is look at it. Um, On the other hand, uh, I want to look at it from David's perspective as he's writing about a friend who be- betrayed him. Um, from Jesus, before we do, from Jesus' per- perspective, he's foretelling uh, Judas' betrayal of him for 30 pieces of silver. And again, um, because prophecy is so downplayed in churches today, I can't emphasize it enough because you can't teach the Bible without running over prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And it's important, especially in these days. So let's just take a little time. And um, we know that um, the Lord was betrayed. Go with me to the book of Zechariah for 30 pieces of silver. We'll be going to Matthew's account of this. Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 and 13 are prophecies pertaining to Judas Iscariot. Verse 12, then I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that pricely price they set on me, so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now, if that's all the information we have, we really wouldn't know what's going on here. Until the prophecy is fulfilled, then you get the complete picture. So the fulfillment of Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13 is actually fulfilled. Now you need to go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, And as you're turning there, I'm drawing your attention to verses um, 14 and 15. John 26, verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests, and he said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Time passes. He betrays the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. They take him. They arrest him. If you go to chapter 27, verses 3 through 10, we find in the first couple verses that after he had been tried, after being betrayed by Judas, verse 1, one morning came all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief 
priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And he said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and he went out and he hanged himself. Now remember that, because I'll be coming back to it. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful for them to put the money back into the treasury because they are the price of blood. We can't have blood money in the temple. And they took counsel and they brought with it the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled, was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now they're going back and talking more prophecy. Not Zechariah, Jeremiah. The prophet saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel pierced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed him. We have a slice of what's going on in Zechariah, but we don't have the full picture until we see um, Judas going, say, what are you gonna give me if I do it? He, he does it, and then they condemn him. After he's condemned, it, it raises a question. Um, it's, it says that, um, that he was remorseful and that he sinned. So it sort of raises the question, does that mean, is it possible that, um, um, be, that actually Judas repented and we'll actually see him someday in heaven? Uh, he's remorseful. Well, let me put it to you this way. Have you ever met somebody who got busted for something and then put in jail and they're sorry? But what are they sorry for? They got caught. <laughs> they're sorry they got caught. They're not, they're not repentive. And if there's any doubt about that, let me quote to you um, Mark 14, verse 21, if you're taking notes. Speaking of Judas Iscariot, he says, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Doesn't sound to me like he's gonna make it. Matter of fact, just the opposite said what he's going to face in eternity, it would have been better if he never existed in the, in the first place. Now, let's look at the prophecy in Psalm 41.9. Let's go back there real quick. And what we're looking at is a double prophecy. Clearly, what we've just laid out, it is in reference to Judas Iscariot. But now what I'd like to do is this prophecy, I would like to look at from David's perspective. He is the one who is penning it. He definitely has somebody in mind. So in order to lay this out and to understand just who this man is, you're gonna have to bear with me as we go through. I'm gonna have you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13, and it's sort of an unfolding of scriptures to get to the identity of the man that David is actually writing about. So if you're in 2 Samuel 13, I'm going through several chapters here, so obviously I can only highlight a certain verses, and then I'm gonna just fill in the gaps verbally, and I will have you look at certain scriptures as as the story unfolds to get to the person that we're looking for. So let's go back to chapter 13. Um, we read verses one and two. This is um, incest in David's house. It says, now after this, it was so that Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Ammon, the son of David, loved her. We have two brothers, Absalom and Ammon. They're brothers, but not by the same mother. Tamar, on the other hand, is blood mother and father to Absalom. Everybody with me so far? Ammon was so distressed over his sister Tamar, he became sick, for she was a virgin. In other words, he is in lust with a lust, love with her. No, I said it right the first time. <laughs> 
he, she was a beautiful woman. And uh, she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amon to do anything to her. Now that much we'll read. And he has a problem. He wants her. But he doesn't know how to get her. So he has this friend in verse three whose name is Jonabab. And it says he's a crafty guy. He's clever. And he says, so you want Tamar. Is that the deal? This is what you do. Well, you go and you pretend you're sick. And then you go tell your dad, I'm feeling terrible. Don't feel like getting out of bed. Can't you have my sister Tamar just make some cakes and bring them in and take care of me while I'm down and sick? So this is the plot that's being handed down to Ammon. Amnon, and um, he says, I'll go for it. Why not? Let's give it a shot. So he plays sick, tells David, he says, can't can't my sister come in and sort of take care of me while I'm feeling down? And so Tamar goes in, and uh, as soon as he gets her behind closed doors, bottom line, make the story short, he rapes her. He forces her. She begs him not to. Don't do the shameful thing. Ask David, he'll give you to me, but don't, don't do this now. That didn't stop him one bit. He went ahead, he raped her, and after he was through with the rape, it says that the love that he loved her for, he now hated her more afterwards than when he loved her before. So now that he's done his deed, he has nothing to do with her. And he kicks her out, closes the door, and let's pick it up with verse 20, she tears her coat and she's in distress and um, she's crying bitterly. We read in verse 19, she has ashes on her head, the robe of many colors was on her and laid her hand on her head and went and cried bitterly. And all of a sudden, Absalom, her brother, shows up. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Ammon, your brother, been with you, question? And he had it all figured out. He, he talks to her and he says, but you hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother's Absalom house. But Absalom wants revenge. And so as we look, um, we find in verse 20, that um, in uh, 23, a period of time goes by, go down to verse, oh, David finds out about it. When the king heard of these things, he was angry, and Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, so he wouldn't talk to him. And Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister. And what I want to point out here, it came to pass that this festered, we read in verse three, for two Full years. What is Absalom thinking for two full years? How am I going to get you? And he's biding his time. And so for two full years passes, and then in verse 23, he goes to his dad and says, you know, I'd like to go and, and worship the Lord. And he says, is it okay if Ammon comes along? And we read, if you go down to verse 20, uh, let's go to verse Uh, 37 when he gets to them I'm sorry let's go to verse 28 first it's a setup and he gets all his other brothers in on on this and his plot is simply to kill Amnon so in verse 28 Absalom had commanded his servants saying watch now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine and when I say to you strike Amnon then kill him And do not be afraid because I'm the one who gives the command to kill here. So now it's over. And what happens then is is Absalom um, takes off. If we look at verse 37 and 39, we'll, we'll find that after this event, word gets back to David. And in verse 37 of chapter 13, but Absalom fled and went to Talmah the son of Amahad, the king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Ammon fled and went to Gersha and was there for 
three years. So from the time, we already got five years built up here. From the time that the event happened, biding his time till he kills Amnon, and now he's in hiding on the run for three years. And verse 39 says that King David longed to go to Absalom for he had been comforted concerning Ammon because he was dead. In chapter 14, um, David allows Absalom to return Jerusalem. And there's a lot that leads up to this with Joab being involved with it and we simply don't have time except to say that after this time David allows Absalom to return to Jerusalem but look at verse 24 where it tells us and the king said let him return to his own house but do not let him see my face so Absalom returned to his own house but he couldn't see the king so now he's back in Jerusalem but he's not allowed to see dad Now, in the next couple of verses, we find out two things about Absalom. Number one, his outward appearance. And number two, his unbridled self-ambition of self-promotion and a plot to be king. So let's read about his appearance, first of all. We find in verse 25 and 26 his appearance. Now, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when they cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he had a haircut once a year. My dad would have never went for that. He cut it because he was heavy on him. Just imagine having heavy, that, that, getting it cut because it's so, so heavy. And when he cut it, it weighed the, the hair of head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard, roughly five pounds of hair. You ever hold a bag of five pounds of sugar? <laughs> That's how much Absalom's hair weighed after, after a year's time. What, what's your point, Dwight? He was extremely good looking, no blemish. And he had that long, beautiful, flowing hair. Well, that's his appearance, but um, he was also... Um, a self-promoter, if you go to chapter 15, um, we find now that he's back in Jerusalem, now that he's been um, restored, we find in verse 15 his self-promotion. After this had happened that Absalom provided for himself chariots and horses and 50 men to ride before him. Absalom would rise up early and stand beside the way of the gate. And so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, well, what city are you from? I call this schmoozing, by the way. And he would say, well, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, look, you got a good case and a right. But there's no uh, deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land. And anyone who had any suit or cause would come to me, I'd give them justice. And so it was whenever anyone came near him to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He's scheming. He's self-promoting. The end of his vision, as far as he's concerned, is dad's got to go, and I want in. And that is um, the self-promoting that takes place. In verse um, 7, we read, it came to pass... Now, most of your Bibles here, you see the, the, um, the mark by 40? This has caused so much um, debate over the years. It says, it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king. Now, believe it or not, there's good arguments for the 40. 
Um, but in my, I don't take that position because I know that it didn't take 40 years. I know it took four. But the theological debate where they came up with the 40 was not enough to change it from what they have in the scriptures. So most Bibles will have 40. It's an ongoing debate. I hold to the four. Because in context here, I know it wasn't 40. That's impossible. Four is not. So it came to pass, I'm going to read, after four years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I vowed to the Lord. And he vowed and vowed. Then Absalom, um, reading down 10 through 5, then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel. As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you will say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited, and they went along innocently, and they did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahipothel, the Gileadite, David's counselor. Here is a person from Psalm 49, verse 1, and Psalm 55. David's friend, his counselor. He was um, next to David in authority, his equal, he called him. And all of a sudden, we find that Absalom sends for David's best friend, Ahithophel, the Gileadite, David's counselor from his city in Gihon, where he offered sacrifice. And here the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continued increase in number. And the word gets out. And uh, it, it raises the question, this really affected David when he wrote the Psalms. My own friend, a man my equal, we went to the church of God together. He is the one who betrayed me. Well, it got my curiosity. Why would David's best friend side up with Absalom when he needed him the most? Next, there's actually an answer to that question. And the answer is in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3. This is a mind blower the first time that I saw this. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3 tells us so this is the sin of adultery with David. So David sent and inquired about the woman. All right, he's seen her, he's lusted after her, and then he calls for her, and then he lies with her. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and basically said, who is that gal? And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You know what that tells us when you do a look at the genealogy? Why would Hippothil be a traitor to David? The reason is because Ahipothil is the grandfather of Bathsheba. Yep, check it out. We have a personal, imagine everybody had just had Thanksgiving, right? All the family members get together. And... Um, not only did um, the daughter of his son had a tragic end to her marriage because of David, Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, was killed through this conniving plan of David in his desperate attempt to hide the fact that he was the father of the child that Bathsheba was carrying. When David had learned the woman he wanted was married and the, uh, the granddaughter of Ahipothel, his most trusted advisor, he should have come to his senses and abandoned his plans of taking advantage of her. Instead, he forced himself upon her in spite of this information. His decision, remember he asked, who is that anyway? He knows who it is, family member of Ahipothel. His decision to sin in this way had tragic consequences for many and many others. Ahipothel never got over this betrayal by David and he was waiting for his opportunity to get revenge because it had harmed his family. Imagine if it's your family and this happens. And um, he's just holding it and waiting for the right time. 
Now, Absalom says, hey, Hippothil, you want to come and join me? I sure do. Timing's right. I've been waiting for this chance for a long time. Even though, from David's perspective, he was his friend. Worshiped the Lord together. A man, his own equal. And now, let's go back to chapter uh, 15, pick it up in verse 12. And we read then, we, these spies are sent out, and then we read verse 12, and Absalom sent for Ahipothel, David's counselor from his city and from Gihon where he offered sacrifices. And we read this, and the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased. And now David, and we can't read all this, I'll have to just explain, is fearful. He is afraid of what's going to happen because of Absalom. And David flees Jerusalem. And in fleeing uh, Jerusalem, 15, 12 to 16, I think that's what we were just reading. Messengers, verse 13, messengers came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And so David said to all of his servants who were in Jerusalem, arise, let's escape, or else we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest all of a sudden he overtake us and disaster is upon us, and he strikes the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, we are your servants, we're ready to do whatever my lord commands. Then the king went out with his household after him, but the king left behind 10 concubines that kept the house. And the rest of, of uh, the chapter conveys that he sends one person back, along with the Ark of the Covenant and the Levites. So everybody was going, including the Levites and the Ark of the Covenant. He says, no, I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant back. Levites, you go too. But then there's a special friend whose name is Hushai, verse 37. And Hushai's job is to go back and, uh, verse 37, so Hushai, David's friend, went into the city and Absalom came to Jerusalem. So his job is now to try to warm himself up to Absalom. And again, I can't read the whole chapter, but basically it's summed up in verses 15 uh, through 19. Chapter 15, verse 37. Now, chapter 16, verses 15. Pick it up there. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people and the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahipothel was with him. And so it was when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? He says, I know you're best friends with my dad. What's up with this? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, but whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I'll remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son as I served in your father's presence? And so will I be in your presence? Then Absalom said to Ahipothel. So he accepts him. He says, okay, so you're, you're being a traitor. You're leaving David. You're coming with me. That's good. Now my problem is I got to get rid of my dad. How am I going to go about doing that? I guess I'll ask for some advice. And then we read, Absalom said to Ahipothel, give counsel what we should do. And Ahipothel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, and this was also a prophecy, and sleep with them, and all the people will know that um, Jerusalem is yours. Verse 23, and the counsel of Ahipothel, which he gave in those days, was one as if he had inquired of the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithahil, both to David and with Absalom. 
In other words, this is one sharp guy. And whatever counsel he gave, people always took because it always came out to the best outcome. So that brings us to his counsel that he gives. I'm going to have you read this on your own. I'm just going to abbreviate it. Chapter 17, 1 to 7 is Hushai's counsel. Go right now. He's going to be tired. He's going to be weak. And he's going to be afraid. Go for it. Absalom, do it and do it quick. And uh, he listened to him. But then in verse 7, he said, Hushai, um, you know your father and his men. What do you think? And he says, bad idea. Don't you know who you're talking about here? You're talking about David. You think David is hanging out with the people? He's hiding in some den somewhere. You're talking about David and his mighty men. You're going to take men out now at nighttime. You think that's going to happen and David's going to stand for it? Not a chance. Dave, your, your men that you send out will be dead by morning. Verse 14. So Ahipothel speaks. Um, and uh, Hushai speaks, verse 14. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithothel, for the Lord had purposed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithothel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. All right, now think this through because we're winding this up to um, the point where the, the Lord uses this guy and everybody believes him, including um, Absalom, and what happens to Ahipothel at this point is interesting to me. He realized that his counsel was rejected. So we read in verse 23 what he does. Now when Ahipothel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, arose, went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and he hanged himself and died and he was buried with his father. Let's connect some dots. Just as Judas portrayed Jesus, remember we have a double prophecy here. And this blows my mind, just how deep the scriptures are. We have a double prophecy, one concerning Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus who hung himself on 41.9. And at the same time, on the other side, we have David who is betrayed by his best friend, a companion, a hippothil, and in his betrayal, he goes home and he hangs himself. And I just find that extremely interesting that both would, because of their self-ambition and self-promotion, would have this tragedy come upon themselves. And somebody else gets hung here, but in a little bit different way. Now, David is after Absalom. And so now in chapter 18, and we'll close it, we're, we're at the end here, um, Absalom's on a mule. And we read in verse nine of 18, then Absalom sent the servants of David and Absalom rode on a mule and the mule went under a thick bough of an oak tree and his head was caught. Imagine all that hair. <laughs> Five pounds of it getting all hang, tangled up there. And so he was left hanging. And just the fact that he's hanging. Um, we have three people who are traitors Two of them take their own life, and this one now he's caught because the Lord had allowed this to come. And it tells us he's hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. So everybody got this picture? He's riding on his mule, he's going through the forest, his hair's blowing all in the air, and his hair gets caught, mule keeps going, and here he is just hanging, and here's Joab coming with ten men with spears. And he goes and looks at him. And in verse 15, it says, the 10 young men who bore um, Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. We have three betrayers. All three of them die of hanging to some sort or another. Just as Judas betrayed Jesus and hung himself, 
So Ahithophel betrayed David, goes and hangs himself. Um, all tied into the prophecy of Psalm 41.9. And we also see Absalom, what is he doing? Seeking self-promotion, ambition. We see sort of a, that all taking place. Let's see if we can close this up with some practical applications for you and I. Let's go back to John chapter 13. Thing about the Bible that's so great is that you can you can talk about Daniel and the lion's den in a Sunday school class and the kids will get it. But then as you get older in the Lord, you want a little bit more meatier stuff. In my uh, years that uh, I've learned and blessed is the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. It says for the countless ages to come, we're talking about eternity, gang. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not this book. He's going to be showing us things in this book throughout all eternity. And you go, wow, I never saw that before. Wow, I never saw that before. And that's going to go on forever and ever and ever. That's how in depth and deep the book you hold in your hands is. And when it says faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. Why is prophecy so important? Because I'm going to tell it to you before it comes to pass. So that when it does come to pass, what? Then you will believe. The importance of prophecy, my friends, is vital in the days that we live. So in winding this up this morning, I'll leave you with a couple questions. So do you want to be happy? Even if the Packers lose? (laughs) You want to be happy? I know that sounds good a lot. You want to be happy? What does the Lord say? I've given you an example. You'd be happy if you want to. But you gotta do it my way. I'm your master and Lord, and I've washed your feet. So if you want to be happy, be a servant. On the other hand, uh, it switches, if you know these things happen, you if you do them, and then it switches into the prophecy about the other side of the coin. Self-seeking schmoozers, promoters, wanting their own way, wanting power, wanting authority, wanting all those things, where does that lead? Well, there's an old expression. It goes something like this. Give a man enough rope, and he'll hang himself. Let a man do his own thing, not serving others. Let him be a self-promoter, a self-seeker, somebody who is a schmoozer, who's schmoozing because he wants promotion. Give him enough man a rope and he'll hang himself. The reason for Bible prophecy is that when it comes to pass, you might believe that I am he. We just looked at one this morning, maybe two, and how rich and how deep it is. I'd be here for a week and you know I would be with all that's going on in the world today. But in closing, for a week straight down in Philippines, um, ash every single day. But it's not just the Philippines. It's unprecedented, it's making news. Earthquakes, all, volcanoes all over the world are doing the same thing. Jesus said there'd be earthquakes in diverse places. Wars and rumors of wars. How about famines? I watched the news last night the largest form of locusts in the last 25 years in Africa, um, causing what? Famine. And they showed pictures of, of, of these pestilences. How about the regathering of the nation of Israel? That's the biggest one. How about the falling away that the Lord talked about in the last days because people would get away from their Bible and not talk about Bible prophecy when it's one of the most powerful tools that we have. We see Ezekiel 38 coming together, just like a jigsaw puzzle. Russia, Turkey, Iran, all there. And it could go on with all the many more that the Lord said, watch. And when he says watch, he's implying we're supposed to be watching about prophecies that he told. And then he says, I'm gonna tell you ahead of time that Israel's gonna come back into the land a second time. And he says, when you see it happen, then when it comes to pass, then 
you may believe that I am he. You want to be happy? Learn to be servant of all. Good place for an amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we make our way through John 13. Lord, help us learn about being self-seeking, self-promoting, and just where that road leads to. On the other hand, you're our Lord and you're our Savior. You said you've given us an example to follow. Lord, we want to be like you. Our problem is our flesh that wants to do its own thing. So help us, Lord, die to our flesh daily as the scriptures encourage us to do. And help us get into that servanthood frame of mind. And Lord, when we do serve, maybe be quick to give you the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. On winding this up this morning, I'll leave you with a couple questions. So do you want to be happy? Even if the Packers lose? <laughs> you want to be happy? I know that sounds good a lot. You want to be happy? What does the Lord say? I've given you an example. You can be happy if you want to. But you've got to do it my way. I'm your master and Lord, and I've washed your feet. So if you want to be happy, be a servant. On the other hand, uh, it switches. If you know these things happen, you if you do them, and then it switches into the prophecy about the other side of the coin. Self-seeking schmoozers, promoters, wanting their own way, wanting power, wanting authority, wanting all those things. Where does that lead? Well, there's an old expression. It goes something like this. Give him a man enough rope and he'll hang himself. Let a man do his own thing. Not serving others. Let him be a self-promoter, a self-seeker. Somebody who is a schmoozer. Who's schmoozing because he wants promotion. Give him enough man a rope and he'll hang himself. The reason for Bible prophecy is that when it comes to pass, you might believe that I am he. We just looked at one this morning, maybe two, and how rich and how deep it is. I'd be here for a week, and you know I would be with all that's going on in the world today. But in closing, for a week straight down in the Philippines, um, ash every single day. But it's not just the Philippines. It's unprecedented. It's making news. Earthquakes, all volcanoes all over the world are doing the same thing. Jesus said there'd be earthquakes in diverse places. Wars and rumors of wars. How about famines? I watched the news last night. The largest form of locusts in the last 25 years in Africa. Um, Causing what? Famine. And they showed pictures of, of, of these pestilences. How about the regathering of the nation of Israel? That's the biggest one. How about the falling away that the Lord talked about in the last days because people would get away from their Bible and not talk about Bible prophecy when it's one of the most powerful tools that we have. We see Ezekiel 38 coming together just like a jigsaw puzzle. Russia, Turkey, Iran, all there. And it could go on with all the many more that the Lord said, watch. And when he says watch, He's implying we're supposed to be watching about prophecies that he told. And then he says, I'm going to tell you ahead of time that Israel's going to come back into the land a second time. And he says, when you see it happen, then when it comes to pass, then you may believe that I am he. You want to be happy? Learn to be servant of all. Good place for an Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we make our way through John 13. Lord, help us learn about being self-seeking, self-promoting, and just where that road leads to. On the other hand, you're our Lord and you're our Savior. You said you've given us an example to follow. Lord, we want to be like you 
Our problem is our flesh that wants to do its own thing. So help us, Lord, die to our flesh daily as the scriptures encourage us to do. And help us get into that servanthood frame of mind. And Lord, when we do serve, maybe be quick to give you the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.